Hey, did you notice, did you notice what we sang just a couple minutes ago? We sang, and your justice flows like the ocean's tide. So, so there are some people, and you know, I don't know if you're one of them or not, but you, you'd say that that belief that God's justice, that God will do what is just, and part of what it means that God will do what is just is that God will punish evil. They'd say that belief is toxic because it produces violent people. The belief that God will judge evil God will punish, makes for judgy, punishing people. That's what they would say. You believe that? I'd like you to think about that while I show you a quote or two here. And I'd like you to be thinking about if you're talking to someone who believed that, that believing in God's justice, that God will finally do what is right, that God will punish evildoers. If they said that leads to violence, what would you say to them? And so this is what one theologian says to them who survived the violence in the Balkans. He writes, the practice of nonviolence, or not returning evil for evil, like not getting sucked into the vortex of retaliation. So if they spit on you, you spit on them. And once more, for good measure, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. That God will make things right. It requires it. Now, why would he say that? He says it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. He says it's really silly and naive to think that if we just get rid of God's judgment and God's wrath and God's hatred of sin, that then we will be nicer. He says that's naive and silly. And it doesn't survive the real world. So Tim Keller then puts this in his own words when he says, If I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right. Okay, so if I don't believe that God will even out the scales, that God is keeping score, that God will judge evil. If I don't believe that. I will take up the sword and will be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. You know, it's kind of like if your brother is picking on you and picking on you and picking on you and picking on you and picking on you. And if you don't believe that by telling mom and dad that they will fix it, then what do you have to do? You have to make things right on your own. You have to. Sometimes you just get tired of waiting for mom and dad. And so you take things into your own hands to make things fair like you think they should be fair. So as we read this today, I want you to test this idea of God's belief that God is the judge. Belief that God will finally make things right. That that keeps us from becoming violent, that keeps us from becoming like the evil people 
that are getting us. Okay, so David is running from his life from a maniacal king named Saul, who has been doing his best to kill him for a long time now. David has been betrayed by King Saul. He's been, like, victimized by King Saul, as King Saul has taken much of what he loves. He's been on the run for a long time. Saul has killed people that helped David. What will keep David from becoming like Saul? And this is important because here's what I want to talk to you about. If I ask you, what did they do to you? What did they say about you? What are they trying to do to you? And, and you, you were able to answer me clearly. This is what they're trying to do to me. Then I'd say, how are you not going to fall into that trap of becoming like them? You're trying to do it back to them. What can you believe about God that will keep you from becoming like them? That's what we're going to read today. Before we do that, let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would stand in front of me while I stand in front of them. That you would talk over me while I talk to them. Lord, do this for your glory, for their sake, for the world's good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel, chapter 24. When Saul, that's the evil, maniacal king who has been chasing David, trying to kill him. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. David is still in the gap, if you remember from last week. He's still in the land between. And we can be awfully tempted to sin when we're vulnerable because we're exhausted, because we're not where we were and we're not where we're going. We're in that terrible space. Like David was golden boy. He was climbing the ladder. He was uh, this combination of rock star and war hero. And he was on his way up. And now he has lost someplace in the wilderness on his way to becoming king. But he's not king yet. Right now he's in the wilderness and he's lost. And, and this is when we can become very, very vulnerable. And here he is. But David was in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to see David and his men in front of the wild goats' rock. You know, the wild goat's rocks. Oh yeah, I know where that is. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. You know, when you're king, you don't want to do that in front of all your troops. So you take the way by the, by the sheep, you know, the, that, that way by the wild goat's rocks. Because you know there's a big cave there, so you know you can relieve yourself. Even if it's a little out of the way, you go that way when you're king. And David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Ooh, there's Saul doing his business, answering the call of nature. Inside the cave is David and his boys. And the men of David said to him, David, David. This is your chance. 
Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. This, it's time, David. It's time. God told you. He promised you about this time. Did God say that? I can't find it if he did. I think they're making stuff up to try to get David to kill him. Stuff that sounds really good and sounds really biblical and they're putting God's name in front of it. But this is how temptation often comes to us. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Your robe was a symbol of power, especially when you're the king. This is why Jonathan gives David his robe. It's a symbol of power. And David cuts off a corner. And afterward, David's heart struck him. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my my Lord, the Lord's... Now watch this next word. It's really important. You'll you'll see it a couple times here. To the Lord's anointed. And uh, the Hebrew word for anointed is there in red after it. And I'll explain why that's important later on. Just, Just kind of take a mental snapshot of it here just for a second. But why does David say he's not going to kill him? He says, I'm not going to kill him because he's the Lord's anointed. To put out my hand against him. You'll see that phrase several times. That's why I have it in yellow. And it's kind of like, because I know God is a judge, I'm not going to take justice into my own hands and kill him, even though I really, really want to. To put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's, what's that next word? Anointed. So David pursued, or persuaded, David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, behold, er, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen? Look at, they're both listening. You know, they both have voices speaking into them. David has the voices of his men. Saul has voices too. Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said... I will not put out my hand against my Lord. I'm not going to take justice into my own hands. I'm not going to do it. For he is, what's that next word? The Lord's anointed. There it is again. Same Hebrew word. See my father, see the corner of the robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, You may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Why is he saying, I am not going to take justice in my hands? Why? Because the Lord is judge. That's God's area. As the proverb of the ancients say, or says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. He's like, look, if I was wicked, I would have killed you. I had my chance. But I'm not wicked, and I didn't kill you, 
so it proves that I'm not wicked. I'm not going to kill you. So leave me alone. But my hand shall not be against you. There it is again. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? A dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be, what's that next word? Judge. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is that your voice, my son David? My son? My son? After he killed, was it 85 priests for helping David? And they're all their families, and he calls him my son. I mean, he was his son-in-law. They had kind of a father-son relationship for a while. Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Man, you've given me a pile of good after I've given you pile after pile of evil. And you're more righteous than me, and you're like a son to me. And you, and you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me. In that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? Now here's the thing. Saul thinks of David as an enemy. But David refuses to think of Saul as an enemy. He just won't. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king. Well, this is why Saul is out David hunting. He's declared, shoot on sight for David. And he is out hunting David with 3,000 men because he knows he's going to be king. So he's trying to kill him so he doesn't become king. So he can be king and Jonathan can become king. But here he says, I know God's going to make you king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. And that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. Then David knew that Saul had really repented. And so David went home with him back to the palace. No, you know that's not true. So David and his men went up to the stronghold because old boys apologized. That doesn't mean he's changed. Forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. Giving up your right to take revenge and trust are not the same thing. David's like, I'm not going to take revenge, but I'm also not going to make myself vulnerable. 
So what did David believe about God that kept him from taking revenge? I mean, I think it's obvious. We've had it in yellow several times, and I don't want to like... But I think we just need to say it because this is something that at a gut level we don't believe. Because we don't believe it, we take things into our own hands all the time. So what did David believe about God that kept him from taking things into his own hands? He believed that God would judge, that God would make things right. He believed that God would eventually balance the scales, that God would eventually even the score, that God would eventually make things right. I mean, he, he believed that God was in control and God would make things right. And so he's like, I don't have to balance things out. I don't have to. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will judge? Do you believe that God will make things right? This life or the next? The Lord will judge. And so, so here's, here's the first implication of this. And, and even if you're like not, you're kind of trying to sort this out yet. Okay, then, then just sort it out. But let me show you what this doctrine does. What this belief about God does. Okay, so because he believed that the Lord would judge, it meant that he didn't have to judge. It meant that he didn't have to try to level out the scale. So here's what happens. Someone does something against us, and we feel like the scale is sideways. And so what we feel like we've got to do is do something to them to make things fair. And so we say things like, well, he started it. You know, he started it, so I had to make things right. You're like, that's so childish. Hmm. Husbands and wives ever ever have conflicts like this where you feel like this is not fair. I've got to say something that it's equally hurtful so it's right. That ever happen? You know, what did they say to you that makes you want to say something equally cutting back to them? I mean, you could just face it and you could say, well, God is in charge of judging that. What did they what did they say about you that makes when you're in a conversation with someone else, you want to tell the truth about the situation, except in a way that makes you look 10 percent better and them look 8 percent worse. You know, what did they say? What did they post that makes you want to post something just a little, you kind of know you shouldn't, but you kind of got to make it fair? What did they do that makes you want to do something back? See, here's what this does. This is, this is why this is good news, that the Lord will judge. This is good news because it frees you from the responsibility to have to make things fair. You don't have to make things fair. You don't have to give them what they deserve. You, you can, if you've been carrying that weight around, feeling like you have to be the judge and jury and you have to make everything right all the time, you can take that off and set it down and know the Lord's got it. 
I think it would be a relief. The Lord will judge, so you don't have to. And, and like this means you don't have to return. So if they give you a pile of evil, you don't have to give them back a pile of evil. If they give you a pile of insults, you don't have to give them back a pile of insults. Okay, that's the first thing. It like, relieves you of becoming like them and falling into the endless vortex of retaliation. The second thing it does is it frees you to return good for evil. Did you see that? That's what Saul says. He says in verse 17, and he said to David, you are more righteous than I. It's a good thing. You know you have been living out a Christian example when your enemies say you are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. If you believe the Lord is judge, you can repay good for evil. Because it's not up to you to make it fair. It's not up to you to decide what they deserve. It's not up to you. It, it's not up to you. You can trust the Lord to make things right. And you can be kind to them. You can be kind to them. Because the Lord will start it out. You know, this is an incredibly Christian doctrine. That our Lord said. Well, let me read it to you. I'd like to just read it to you. I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 6. I'll only be there for a second. So unless you're really fast at flipping, um, I'd stand for Samuel 24. But if you want to flip to Luke chapter 6, you can. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. This is our Lord speaking. And he says, But I say to those, to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. They give you a pile of hate, you give them a pile of good. They give you a pile of abuse, you give them a pile of prayer. And I know you're like, that's not fair. That's not what they deserve. Yep. And that's why you trust the Lord to sort it out. I want to relieve you of the burden of trying to balance out the scale of the universe. I want to free you to be kind when other people are being evil. Wherever you are, whatever mess you find yourself in, you don't have to become like them. But if this were all that was true about God, I'm just going to say it, we would all be damned because we've all done evil. We've all sinned. All of us have the scales tipped the wrong way. All of us, when we look out, we always think, well, they're worse than me, they're worse than me, they're worse than me. They're, you know, like, okay, you can always find negative examples. 
But we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have lived up to it perfectly. If God was in the business of only giving justice, if that's all God did, we would be in serious trouble. This is why this Hebrew word is really important. This is the Hebrew word for anointed, in case you don't remember. But this is the word that was, we translate in our translations, anointed. And it's another word for the king. The, uh, and because Saul was the anointed one, David spared his life. Remember that? Because David was the anointed one, later on, God would spare his life and God would protect him. The Greek word that translates this Hebrew word, so the origin, it was originally in the Old Testament, it was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek word looks like this. It's a Greek word. For anointed. It's a Greek word for king. And this is what it says about the anointed king that all of history had been waiting for. It says, For I deliver to you as the first importance. This is the Apostle Paul saying, This is what's the most important thing. Or what else you have, you have this. For I deliver to you as the first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins. See, Saul, because he was anointed, David spared him. David, because he was the anointed one, got spared. But when it came to God's own son, the anointed one, he was not spared. But he died in place of his people. That Christ died for our sins like the Bible always said he would. This is the ultimate example of returning good for evil. We give God a giant pile of sin and say, I can't do this. And God gives us his righteousness. And bears his wrath and bears the punishment for our sins. In our place. And so we just go to him. For the forgiveness. Of sins. And as we receive this forgiveness of sins. Then we are instructed to forgive others. As we've been forgiven. See. In the New Testament. Especially in the teachings of Jesus. This. Because you are forgiven, you need to forgive. These things go hand in hand. They really go hand in hand. Think of our Lord's prayer as he taught his disciples to pray. Remember what he said? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us today our daily bread. And then he said, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But we're like, but they don't deserve it. Matthew West sings. It's the hardest thing to give away. And the last thing on your mind today. And it always goes 
to those who don't deserve. You don't deserve forgiveness, and they don't deserve forgiveness. But that's what we're going to celebrate when we take communion. The great exchange where God took our sins onto his own person in the person of Jesus and gave us his righteousness so that we could be forgiven. It is a truly returning good for evil. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that we can trust that we can trust you to be judge and we can trust you to sort things out. Lord, help each one here take a step closer to you in their faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to transition now to the Lord's Supper. And at our church, we believe and practice um, open communion, which means you don't have to be a member here to participate in communion. This just has to be true in your life, that you have given your sins, that you've given him your unrighteousness, and that he has given you his forgiveness. It's just got to be true in your life. And if that's true, then we want you to participate with us, that this can be a reminder to you of the great exchange where he gave you his righteousness, and he gave you forgiveness, even as you gave him your sin. So, As Ken plays, and you take a moment to reflect on Christ's sacrifice for your sins, I want to read to you part of the gospel of Jesus' death. And as I read, and you reflect on how Christ gave us good and took away our sins, May you think about how God might be calling you to return good for evil. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So as you reflect on Christ's death for your sins as you remember that remember 
the price at which he offers us forgiveness. I'd like you to take just this top layer off of this cup. Take out the bread. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Open the cup. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes And Lord, we are so thankful that you allowed your body to be sacrificed so that we could have hope that our bodies would one day be totally, completely, utterly healed. And that you allowed your blood to be shed so that our sins could be forgiven. Lord, we trust you because you love us. And we trust you to do what is just and right. Pull us one step closer to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name.